0: Hello, and welcome to Seen and Unseen Aloud. It's great to have you with us. Here at Seen and Unseen Aloud, we're gearing up to celebrate our first birthday. Doesn't seem quite possible, but we've been going for a whole year, every week, and we're grateful that so many of you have joined us for the ride. To thank you for your support, we want to invite requests for our anniversary episode. If there's an article you have particularly enjoyed and would like to hear again, please let us know and we'll put together a compilation of the most popular. If you'd like to get involved with this, please head over to our website, seenandunseen.com, where you'll find a quick form to fill in to submit your request. And we'd love to know more about where everyone is and what you're all doing while you're listening to us. Maybe you're doing the washing up or go for a walk. We'd love to get a picture of our seen and unseen community. Requests need to be in by Tuesday the 12th of March. But for now, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, get ready to listen to discover the seen and unseen Prince William's Doubt is Normal, It's Impossible to Be Certain Whether There is a God, by Graeme Tomlin. A new book, serialised in the Daily Mail, suggests Prince William is wondering whether he really wants to be Supreme Governor of the Church of England. While he respects the church, it claims, he doesn't consider himself particularly religious and doubts if he should head up a church he doesn't attend much. There's been a fair amount of comment on the contrast between his grandmother's strong Christian faith, increasingly evident in her Christmas broadcasts as she came to the end of her life, and that of his father, who has also made a point since his accession to the throne for emphasising his own personal Christian commitment, both in statements around the time he became king and in his Christmas broadcast this past year. William, however, is less forthcoming. He was dutifully confirmed at Eton at the age of 14 and goes to church Christmas and Easter, so presumably is not a hardened Dawkins-esque atheist. Like many of his generation, he probably has his doubts about God and religion, doesn't often speak publicly about faith, and so it's hard to know from the outside whether this really is a motivating force in his life or not. Of course, there is a whole separate argument about why personal faith, while it helps, is not strictly necessary for such a role. Many British monarchs in the past have not had a very strong Christian faith. The significance of the role rests in the office, not the person. It is a constitutional, not a personal arrangement. But that is a very different story. What interests me is what this story tells us about faith and doubt, and the experience of what it is to believe. I was once an atheist, yet, like most atheists, I had my doubts. I tried to get on with my life not believing in God, yet every now and again something would happen to me to make me doubt my atheism. I would meet a Christian with a profoundly impressive life, motivated by their faith, and it disturbed me. An argument from a Christian writer momentarily seemed strangely plausible. An encounter of the beauty and wonder of nature suddenly might lodge the thought in my mind that maybe there is a creator after all. Like all good atheists, however, I managed to push these thoughts to the back of my mind. I learnt to doubt and resist these impulses, and returned to my central take on the world, which was that there definitely is no God. As it happened in time, my doubts became too strong for me, and I began to think that Christian faith made more sense of the world than atheism did. And so, eventually and slowly, I became a Christian. Of course, the process happens the other way around as well. People with a notional Christian faith start to doubt to the extent that it no longer makes sense to them. I have now been a Christian for many years, and a bishop for a few of those. Like in my atheist days, I have days when I wake up and wonder whether it's all true. Am I deceiving myself? Have I wasted most of my life on something that's not real? I might read a book that is sceptical about some aspect of the Christian story, and a doubt niggles away in the back of my mind. God suddenly appears silent in answer to heartfelt prayers, and for a moment I wonder if he's there at all. I have doubts, just as I did in my atheist days. But like I did when I was an atheist... I learned to doubt my doubts. Atheists often challenge Christians to come up with a piece of evidence that would suggest that God exists. And sometimes we try, with arguments from the design of the universe, apparent miracles, fulfilment of biblical prophecies and so on. But they never quite convince. The reason they don't convince is that the atheist can always come up with an alternative explanation. And that takes us to the heart of the issue. For Christians, and for other believers in God for that matter, God is not another object in the universe that can be proved or disproved. I might find indications that point in the direction of their being a God, but as the atheist points out, you can always explain them away in some form or other. Instead, atheism and belief in God are better seen not as the result of a process of sifting evidence, looking for proof one way or another, but as different ways of looking at the world. The philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein once picked up a common cartoon that circulated in German comic newspapers in the late 19th century to make a similar point. Looked at one way, it looks like a rabbit. Look at it another way, it looks like a duck. Whether you see a rabbit or a duck is dependent upon other factors. Children who have been to the local duck pond might be inclined to see a duck. Someone with a pet rabbit might be inclined to see a rabbit. Wittgenstein's point was about the way concepts in our mind shape our perceptions of reality. We may perceive the same thing, but we see it as something different. The idea of seeing as, seeing something not just in itself, but as something, shaped by our mind's perceptions, became well known in philosophy after Wittgenstein's use of the image may help us in thinking about belief in God as well. On a Christmas Day edition of The Rest Is Politics, with Alistair Campbell and Rory Stewart, soon after his appearance on Re-Enchanting, one of our podcasts, two of the most popular podcasts of our times met when Tom Holland of The Rest Is History came on the podcast. As it was Christmas Day, Alistair Campbell asked Tom Holland whether he believed the Christmas story and all the rest of the Bible. His reply referred to this very picture of the dark rabbit. And he said, there are times where I can believe it. And there are other times where I look at the stories and think, this is absolutely ridiculous. How could it possibly be true? I think the infinity of space. I think a vast geological time. And I think it's absolute nonsense. So I veer between the two. In a way, he's right. You can't decide between the two ways of looking at the picture by some process of forensic scientific evidence. There is no ultimate way of deciding whether it is a duck or a rabbit. Now, the analogy with faith is imperfect. The picture could be a rabbit, it could be a duck, whereas, to put it bluntly, there either is or is not a god. Both can't be true. Where the image helps us is that in our limited understanding of things, it is possible for any of us to say, whether believer or atheist, that we know 100% definitively that there is or is not a God. Even Richard Dawkins agrees on that point. The other difference is that you can't be neutral on this. Whether you see it as a dark or a rabbit probably makes no difference to your life. Yet faith is more than just an opinion. It is a way of life. To believe in God, in the Christian sense of believe, is not just to hold the opinion in your head that God exists, but to decide to live as if it were true that God exists, that he is revealed in Jesus Christ, that each person you meet each day is a precious soul for whom Jesus died, and so on. The American philosopher Michael Novach put it like this, the centre of the argument concerns whether I should think of the universe as impersonal and indifferent to me and ruled by randomness and chance, or whether I should interpret it as personal through and through, in such a way that all things that are and have been and will be dwell in the presence of God, a person who understands and chooses all that he brings out of nothingness into existence. Whatever faith position you take up to believe that there is a God or that there isn't, you will have doubts. But the nature of faith is not to have an absence of doubt, but it's how you treat those doubts. At the end of the day, each of us has to decide which approach makes most sense of the world that we experience every day. Does the problem of evil, why bad things sometimes happen, mean you can't believe in God? Or does the problem of good, why good things sometimes happen, mean you can't be an atheist? Prince William and Tom Holland, for that matter, may have their doubts about faith. But that is no reason not to decide to believe. When I became a Christian, it was because the world no longer made sense to me as a place that emerged by chance, that no ultimate purpose, that our intelligence emerged literally from nonsense. Our deep need for love seemed to fit better with the idea that this world emerged out of love than it emerged from a heartless random void. Seeing the world in that way makes better sense to me than the alternative. It doesn't mean everything suddenly makes sense, but it does offer me a better way of thinking and living in the world. I can't prove it. I have my days of doubt. But that's the way I choose to believe, and choose to live. Beyond Pancakes and Chocolate, a sensory guide to Lent and Easter, by Leanne Howard-Dace. In the dusk light, I could just see the order of service in my right hand and the candle in my left. As the clergy processed from the back of the cathedral, the smell of frankincense preceded them. Light was passed from the fire pit at the back of the building via the huge pillar of the paschal candle at the front of the procession to tapers taken to the end of each row of seats. Then finally it was passed from person to person as each of us lit our candle from our neighbours. As a warm glow filled the huge room, I could now read the paper in front of me, just in time to join in with the start of the singing. It was the evening before Easter Sunday and I, along with 22 others, was going to be baptised that night. Having grown up in a non-religious family, I was not christened as a child, and so aged 26, I made the choice for myself to draw a line in the sand of my life and commit to being a follower of Jesus. I didn't realise at the time, but the practice of being baptised at Easter goes right back to Jesus' first followers in the early church. Of course, taking part in a ritual of rebirth on the day that Jesus came back from the dead makes a lot of sense, when you think about it. That service was the beginning of a new life for me in many ways, and also the beginning of a love for this kind of high-drama expression of church. I love that there are so many different expressions of Christianity, different ways of being together, of worshipping God and shaping the church gathering. Whilst I have tended to be part of churches that lean more toward contemporary music and less formality, I enjoy taking the odd excursion to other types of church, and for me Easter is the perfect time to embrace more traditional, or what is known as high church, ways of worshipping. The secular world has kept hold of a couple of the edible Lent and Easter traditions. Fair enough. I don't need much convincing to eat pancakes or chocolate eggs either. But I'd say that topping and tailing this season with sweet treats, without the full spectrum of bitter, salty, sour in between, is a missed opportunity. Lent helps us to remember the 40 days and nights Jesus spent in the desert, when he was tested and tempted. It is the time to reflect, to think about things in our lives which we want to change, perhaps even to ask God for forgiveness for. It is the time to dwell in God's word through the Bible and to fast. That's where the pancakes come in, to use up the sugary and fatty ingredients in the house who so are not tempted to eat them during Lent. Though nowadays you're probably as likely to find people taking up a wholesome practice or habit in Lent as you are to find them giving something up. I'd argue that in the modern world, we aren't great at thinking about death and darkness. We try not to dwell on the things we might need forgiveness for. Instead, we suppress them and pretend they don't exist. We can move so far the other way that we fall into toxic positivity. We deny the breadth of what it is to be human in this world. That's why the symbols and rituals of Lent and Easter can be so helpful. They give us containers in which to explore the whole range of human experience and emotion. They give us permission to enter into the depths of it all. So, after you've put the Jeff Lemon away from Shrove Tuesday, you might like to go to an Ash Wednesday service to mark the start of those 40 days of Lent. You'll find this service in Roman Catholic churches, as well as many Anglican and some other Protestant traditions. The culmination of the service will be the imposition of ashes, hence the name. The palm crosses from the previous year, more on that later, will have been burned and mixed to form an ashy paste. Those present will be invited to come forward and have an ash cross marked on their forehead. As the priest does this, they will say to each person, Remember that you are dust, and to dust you shall return. I realise, to some, this may seem quite morbid and possibly eccentric, but if you can suspend your inner cynic, you might find that there is something rather freeing about remembering that we are made from dust. When the writers of Genesis, the opening book of the Bible, wrote those words centuries ago, they didn't know, as we do now, that the elements that make up each human were formed in supernovas but they knew that we are intrinsically linked to God, one another, the Earth and the universe. Remembering that I am dust puts things in perspective. I'm only here for a short time and many of the things I expend energy worrying about are inconsequential. But it also hints at a miracle. I am a thinking, feeling being made from pieces of billion-year-old stars. Lent is a time to ponder such mystery. As the season progresses, people may try to carve out more time than usual for spiritual practices like prayer and reading the Bible. If you give something up, you'll likely find the discipline of sticking to it helps focus the mind. It brings you back to the things you want to contemplate. I think the hardest thing I ever gave up was coffee. I did a lot of thinking that Lent. Churches tend to follow the story of Jesus' last days on earth throughout their services in Lent. The last Sunday before Easter marks Jesus' final arrival in Jerusalem before he was killed. We read in all four Gospel accounts that Jesus, whose renown had spread by this time, entered the city to be greeted by huge, cheering crowds. Many were said to be waving palms, which is why it's become known as Palm Sunday, Many churches give out crosses made from palm fronds as a tangible symbol of the story. From Palm Sunday, we enter into Holy Week, which runs right up to Easter, as the story intensifies. Many churches will have additional services during this week, which vary depending on the tradition of church and local habits. As a night owl, I am a big fan of Compline, the night prayer service used in many monasteries and new monastic communities. A couple of years ago, I lived in an Anglican parish where they had Compline every night during Holy Week. The Compline Liturgy, its format and typical patterns of words, helps me reflect and wind down at the end of the day. My delight in being able to take part in the service every day that week was only increased by the fact that several people each evening brought their dogs with them. The Thursday of Holy Week referred to as Maundy Thursday, marks the Last Supper and Jesus' arrest. The word Maundy comes from the same root as the word Mandate, because at the Last Supper, Jesus gives a new mandate or commandment to his disciples. He says, I give you a new commandment, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also should love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. One of the ways that Jesus expressed this love for his disciples at the Last Supper was to wash their feet. Constantly wearing sandals or bare feet in a sandy environment meant frequent foot washing was needed in first century Palestine. Usually those of lower standing would be the ones doing the washing, but Jesus flips this on its head. Despite being their rabbi, their teacher, Jesus is the one who ties a cloth around his waist to wash his followers' feet in an act of service. Often this is reenacted at a Maundy Thursday service with a priest or leader washing the congregation's feet. It is a way of trying to live out that new commandment to love each other as Jesus has loved us. A Maundy Thursday service often happens in the evening when the Last Supper would have taken place. To acknowledge the sadness and indignity of Jesus' betrayal by Judas and his unjust arrest, in many churches the congregation will strip the altar of all its decoration at the end of this service. They may then follow a silent vigil, where people are invited to stay into the night, keeping silent watch as Jesus asked his disciples to keep watch as he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. The altar will remain bare and empty until Sunday. That starkness suits the mood as we move into Good Friday, the day that marks Jesus' execution on the cross. Of course, we have the benefit of knowing the redemption and renewal which is to come when Jesus comes back from the dead, but I expect that Jesus' devastated followers would not have called it good at the time. On Good Friday, we sit in the pain of knowing that Jesus was taken by the authorities and violently killed. We come face to face with all the worst that human experience can entail – hurt, anguish, desolation, loss. We do this not in spite of or in ignorance of the resurrection and joy to come. We don't do it to be morbid or to wallow in pain for the sake of it. We do it because sadness and grief are valid parts of the human experience and because being a follower of the God who became human and entered into our suffering is to remember that he died. Services taking place on Good Friday will vary according to traditions of each church, but they will be reflective and sombre in nature. Some will simply hold space for people to sit and reflect on the magnitude of the day's meaning. Others will hold services which take in the 14 scenes which tell the story of Jesus' death, known as the Stations of the Cross. Some churches have artworks depicting these on the walls at all times. Others will put something up for the occasion. People may move around each scene, from Jesus being condemned to death to being laid in the tomb. Taking time to reflect, read the Bible and pray at each. It is a way of recreating a pilgrimage to the cross and entering into the story of Jesus. Then comes Holy Saturday, the day before Easter. But it is not practised with the same excitement as Christmas Eve. The anticipation of Lent is different to the anticipation of Advent. Whilst the joy of Jesus being resurrected from the dead is arguably even greater than the joy of his birth, we must, like too often in life, pass through grief to get there. Even though we have the advantage over Jesus' disciples of already knowing that Jesus will rise from the dead, Holy Saturday, in fact, represents where we spend much of our time in life. The in-between, the messy middle, knowing that painful Good Friday experiences happen in the world, whilst looking to the hope of renewal, which Jesus promises. Some churches, like the cathedral I was baptised in, will carry out their Easter vigil late on Holy Saturday. Others will save that celebration of the resurrection until first light, beginning Easter Sunday with a dawn service that follows a similar pattern with fire and candles. Some churches will even eat together after the formal part of their time together is finished. I remember having to get up at 5am one year to cook the 50 sausages which were my contribution to the cooked breakfast we shared though I did doze in the kitchen whilst they were in the oven. Of course, the vast majority of churches will have their usual service slot on a Sunday. However many of these rituals they have marked in the lead-up each community will take time on Easter Sunday to celebrate because the tomb is not the end. When some of his women followers went to cleanse his body, Jesus was not there. He rose again. It is this promise of death being defeated which we remember and celebrate at Easter. From the depths of darkness, we emerge into light. My favourite part of the Easter Sunday service is when the leader proclaims, He is risen, and everyone responds with, He is risen indeed, hallelujah, at the top of their lungs. Through the mystery of his death and resurrection, Jesus gives us certain hope that all people and all of creation will be renewed and reconciled to God in the fullness of time. And that's worth shouting about. Thank you for listening remember to subscribe to this podcast to get more curated articles from seen and unseen aloud we hope you discover a world that is greater more full of meaning and sense than you ever imagined